Section 25 of Loss of the Sultana by Chester D. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 25. Simeon D. Chelf. I was born in Greene County, Kentucky, on the 17th of January, 1844. I enlisted in the service of the United States at Liberty, Kentucky, on the 23rd of July, 1862, as a private in Company G of the 6th Kentucky Cavalry. About the 1st of March, 1865, our regiment left Nashville, Tennessee, for East Point, Mississippi. After letting our horses rest a few days, we started on what was known as the Wilson Raid, we supposed for Mobile, Alabama. General Crookston, with the 1st Brigade, which consisted of the 4th Kentucky Mounted Infantry, 2nd Michigan Cavalry, 6th Kentucky Cavalry, and 8th Iowa Cavalry, was en route for Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and on the 31st encamped within 20 miles of Tuscaloosa. The next morning, by gray daylight, our pickets commenced firing. We were all soon mounted, and Companies C and G of the 6th Kentucky Cavalry were detailed for rear guard. Our army marched down the road and was gone about one hour when the firing increased. Then it ceased for a few minutes. Our companies were in line ready to march when the rebels commenced firing on us again. We swung into line, and seeing so many blue coats, we hallowed to them to cease firing, which they did for a moment. Captain Paris and Lieutenant J. J. Serber ordered a charge, which was made expecting to regain our command, although we encountered a larger force of rebels. We charged through the line of battle, then into a brigade that was marching by fours. At the rear of this brigade was a barricade, or a fence, built across the road. There five of us stopped, and were firing down the columns of another brigade, and while there we had to surrender. The rebels took us back on the road about a mile, and then began to take such clothing from us as best suited them. Oh, well do I remember of a rebel who traded me a pair of shoes for a good pair of boots, and all the difference I got was, Set down, you yank, or I'll put my bayonet through you while I pull them boots off. Of course the persuasion caused the trade. They then started to take us to prison. While marching along, an old man came out to the road and said, I guess, damn you, you uns ain't out stealin' horses today like you uns were yesterday. S. H. Davenport looked at him and said, Yes, damn your old soul, you ain't hidden the woods like you were yesterday. They marched us afoot until late in the night, and not a bite to eat until the 2nd of April, about 10 o'clock, and that was dry corn dodgers. We got to Uniontown, Alabama, the 4th of April, and while there some twenty or thirty of the 1st Mississippi Cavalry came in. They wanted to know what kind of guns you damn Yanks got. We had Spencer carbines. I told them that we could wind them up and start them to shooting at sunrise, and they would not stop until sundown. Well, I believe it, for Ewan's kept a solid cloud of lead over our breastwork at Selma. From Uniontown we went to Moberly, Alabama, 
on Tom Bigby River. There we stopped for the night, and I asked permission to go and buy some sweet potatoes of some darkies. It was granted, and a guard, we called them our bodyguard, went with me. I got as many potatoes as I could carry for a five-dollar Confederate bill, and on my return to where the rest of the boys were, I saw a Confederate soldier peddling whiskey. I asked him how he sold it, and he said, Five dollars a glass. I told him I would take three glasses. I drank one, gave one to my messmate, and the other to my lieutenant. On the following morning we boarded a boat, crossed the river, and there the home guards were out, all of them, wanting to kill a yank. Then we started from there to Meridian, Mississippi, where they marched every one of us and marched us into prison. When the first two of our squad entered the prison, the old prisoners commenced yelling, "'Fresh fish!' After we all got in, they flocked around us to get the news from the outside world. Everyone was anxious to know what our army was doing. After we were in prison a while, we drew our rations, which were one pint of cornmeal, ground cob, and altogether. This was one man's rations. And a half of a hog jowl for ten men per day, and also some pine wood, with which we did our cooking. After our fires were in full blast, one of the Seventh Illinois Cavalry and I were talking. I said to him, I do not want to hurt your feelings, but a bodyguard is crawling on your neck. His reply was, It does not hurt my feelings at all. If the sun shines out, you will see plenty of them. There is no use of my telling it, for few will believe it. The sun shone bright next day, and you could see them crawling all over the prison, but lucky for us we did not remain there long. We were on the road to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to go into parole camp. We were there when Lincoln was assassinated, one of the best men that ever sat in the presidential chair, and if he was alive today, we, the rank and file, would be better treated by the law-making powers of the land. After we got into parole camp and had plenty to eat, we were happy once more. We boarded the ill-fated steamer Sultana, April 25, 1865, and at dusk she started out with her heavy freight from Memphis, Tennessee. The river was up to high-water mark. I thought it was over high-water mark when I came to try it. We landed at Memphis April 26, 1865, and unloaded some sugar, I don't know how much. We then pulled out a barge of coal and took on enough to run to Cairo, Illinois. Then we started up the river. Everything seemed to be safe. About two o'clock in the morning of April the 27th, the boiler of the boat exploded. When this took place, I was sleeping on the bow of the boat with my head against one of the cable posts. Seth H. Davenport was at my left, and on his left was a man who was killed. A piece of iron glanced my head and in the excitement I thought the rebels had fired a battery on us. My blankets were covered with ashes, cinders, and fragments of timber, and they were rather heavy to crawl from under. The front part of the cabin and the pilot house were blown to atoms, 
and the stairway damaged so that it could not be traveled. The boat was crowded with soldiers from boiler deck to hurricane deck. A man stood on the lower part of the stairway and hallooed, "'The boat is sinking!' The men rushed to the bow of the boat and jumped overboard as fast as they could, tumbling into the river upon each other and going down into the deep by the hundreds. After the main rush was over, I had more room and could see what was going on. While gazing about, I saw the fire start up in the coal that lay near the furnace. I looked for a bucket so as to get water to put it out, but couldn't find any. I went to the bow of the boat to see what had become of the man that was killed. He was still there, but all of his clothing was torn off him by the men running over his body. I began to look for something to aid me in swimming. I found a board fourteen or sixteen feet long and was watching my opportunity to jump off and to keep as far from anyone as I could when A. M. Jacobs came to me and asked me to save his life. He said, "'You can swim and I cannot.' I replied, "'I will help you all I can, but a man cannot do much in water.' He then asked me to give him my board for his pole, as he called it. It was a small post used in the framework of the cabin, and was four by six inches square at each end, and the rest was worked down. I did so. We both went to the bow of the boat to jump overboard, but there were too many men in the water, the water being covered with men's heads, all of them begging for something to be thrown to them on which they might escape. I believe I saw a hundred and fifty or two hundred men sink at once near the bow of the boat. The fire was now getting headway and sweeping everything with which it came in contact, and I knew I must take to the water. I looked around for the man that was killed, but he was gone. I suppose someone threw him overboard to keep him from being burned up. Jacobs and I walked to the edge of the boat and stopped and prayed and at the Amen we both jumped overboard. Jacobs held to the board I gave him, and when I came to the surface of the water I told him to put one end of the board under his breast and hold it there with one hand, paddle with the other hand, and to kick with both feet. After he got started on his board I told him to do the best he could, and I started for the Arkansas shore. The boat being now under heavy flames gave good light so I could see the timber. When I got about halfway between the burning steamer and the shore, a boat came down the river with bales of hay, which were dumped into the river. The waves overtaking me, I was strangled by their slapping me in the face. At length I got the run of them by diving through one and riding the next. When I was within three or four hundred yards from the timber, a young man came swimming up behind me and said, "'Ha, pard! Haven't you something I could rest my hand on until we get to the bushes?' I stopped and looked at him and asked him if he had any clothes on. He said he had on his shirt. I told him to take it off and he could swim better. He did so, and I pushed my post back and he put his hand on one end, I on the other, and we both got the step and landed in the bushes together. Thinking now of having a good rest, I took hold the tops of two bushes, 
letting myself down full length and not finding bottom, I concluded that was no place to rest, and started out in the brush to find land. Coming to a leaning willow, I threw my left arm and foot over it to rest. I held about half of my body out of water, but I got chilly in that position, and again let down for bottom, but could not find it. I then pulled out for the shore, but was unable to find it after wandering around one or two hours. This is very much shorter than I thought it was at that time. I then started for the main part of the river, thinking some boat might pick me up, every now and then hallooing, "'Has anybody found land?' A man hallooed, "'Here's a good dry log you can get on.' I told him to keep up a noise so I could find him, it being then the darkest hour of the night, just before daybreak. We kept up a chat until I reached the log which had a limb about three feet long. I threw my arms over the limb, but I could not kick another lick. I could not have got on the log if he had not helped me. I placed my feet on the limb, and with my hands rubbed and hit myself on the breast. I got so blind I could not see. After that wore off, I could stand up. Then I jumped up and down to start the perspiration. After the dawn of day, mosquitoes came on us by the thousands. We had it pretty lively then, until we were taken on board of a vessel the name of which I do not remember. We were landed at Memphis and taken to the soldiers' home. All the clothing I had was a rebel hat, calico shirt, and a pair of red flannel drawers. A. Rhodes and I slept on a newspaper so as to keep our clothes clean. We remained there eight or ten days. After we drew our clothing, we were put on a boat and started for Cairo, Illinois. There we stopped at the soldiers' rest, afterward boarded a train, and ran up to Mattoon, where the citizens had provided plenty for us to eat. From there we went to Terre Haute, Indiana, where we were treated well by the citizens. From Terre Haute to Indianapolis, where we received a good supply of bacon and beans. Our next stopping place was Columbus, Ohio, where we stopped overnight in Todd Barracks, and the following morning started for Camp Chase, where we were discharged from the service. While walking up the street, we met a man who had a boiled shirt, and he asked A. Rhodes, "'What regiment is this?' He answered, "'No regiment at all. Just a detail of Wilson's cavalry sent down the Mississippi River to catch alligators.' My present occupation is farming. Post office address, Lebanon, Kansas. End of section 25